Hi guys, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Cassidy Cook and this podcast will showcase my book, Liquid Lineage, and we are currently heading into chapter four. Now, once we make it through the first four chapters, we will also have made it through the first 24 hours with the family. As the sun has nearly risen and set once for the Lukers, we have gotten to know the three Luker children, Rowan, Crane, and Mercy. We have also gotten to know the incredibly illustrious matriarch as well as the stubborn and stoic patriarch. So as we slowly inch closer to the episode here, I would love to make an announcement about the structure of this podcast moving forward. You see, my book, Liquid Lineage, is a massive book. I want you to think Lord of the Rings level girth. And you might actually be able to tell. We are four chapters down, and like I said, the sun has risen and nearly set once for the Lukers, so time moves differently for my subjects, and it will help to keep that in mind. For example, when writing this book, the goal was to make the pace feel very gelatinous. That's the best way I can describe it, anyway. The energy feels very thick and all-consuming, like a very dark and dense forest on a mountaintop. And we will push through, and I promise it will be oh so worth it when we reach the other side of the concept together. I mean, we haven't peaked yet. At least let us peak, and then you can leave me if you'd still like to. So in chapter 3, Crane's wrist must have been getting red and raw as Meredith catches him in his father's study. He had previously been frozen in one of his moratoriums, however, this one was more intense than usual. He stares, distantly fixated on a key that lays on the floor from when Mercy broke the rock after she tripped and knocked it off Lachlan's bookshelf. When Mercy is found in the safe room prior to Crane's break in consciousness, she was too excited to calm herself and runs off to play in the forest, leaving Crane to be found by his mother soon following their arrival home. So many questions left unanswered. Let's get to work on this puzzle, shall we? So roll up your sleeves because you are listening to Episode 4, Chapter 4. Meredith brings Crane to sit at the bottom two steps of the grand staircase in the center of the house to discuss what the hell he was doing in the study. Obviously, she would never phrase it like that in a million years. She was more likely to say something like, My boy, what were you thinking going in there? What if your father caught you instead of me, huh? Her bold white eyes, speckled in vibrant yellow, seep through his pores and melt defenses he thought were well-equipped. She stands above him still, and for a moment, he realizes he thought wrong. His walls and barricades were being obliterated right before his eyes, and all he could do was sit there and watch it happen. Now, the grayish-white aura that consumes her and follows her wherever she may roam sits down seemingly between them, creating a difference in energetic tones between the two, hers saying to his, I am bigger and brighter than you. Because of this, Crane could not lie to his mother. He never was able to. Her presence alone can shatter false words. She will make you stumble if you run, and she will make you stutter when you lie. She will give you hope only when it's empty, and she will tell you the truth only when it hurts. Not on purpose, necessarily, although she not so secretly loves it. It's mostly subconscious, Crane presumes, like a biological fail-safe in instances of expected vulnerability. She doesn't know how she does it, or even when, truly. It's just built into her matter-of-fact pure white bones. 
She is small in vessel, but towers like the trees over everyone that surrounds her, never actually providing substances of any kind. Huh? Crane hears reverberating in his head until his consciousness regurgitates, and when he is clear-minded once again, he says, I was playing hide-and-seek with Mercy, and then I... I forget. I... I remember standing in front of the study room door, and then I took my boots off. I was sure I was doing... Somewhere along the way, I forgot I was looking for her, but it's like... Crane looks up at Meredith. It's like I was drawn right to her. He sits with his bony butt on the solid gold staircase, knees bent upwards, placing his pointy dry elbows atop them. His hands were up by his nose, and he was shaking them against the tip of it. His body does such strange things involuntarily. They both have this same thought simultaneously as she reaches out and places her pale hand atop both of his, which were now conjoined with cold sweat and vibrating with nervous energy. This imitation of reassurance from his mother demanded a response that was equally well portrayed. Thanks, Mom. I know. I need to get a better handle on... well, everything. I needed... So you'd never found Mercy? What? You never found Mercy, Crane. Yes, I told you I found her in the study, Crane pleads. No, Crane, says Meredith, emphasizing Crane's ignorance. That was this afternoon, before we left for the Drepa with your brother. You came running in those front doors, soaking wet, telling me stories of how you couldn't find Mercy. Crane knew he left in the still misty hours around 8 a.m. to go to the forest to find his sister. He also knew he came home around 11 o'clock. He also knew that his sister was playing hide-and-seek with him long before he had agreed to play with her. He remembers Mercy telling him in the study that she was hiding in the house the whole time he was out there searching for her. Meredith interrupts Crane's thought processes. Crane, you're telling me you haven't known where your sister has been all day until just before we got home? Meredith asks as if she already knows the answer, and Crane remains quiet. See, my son, we left at noon and were home at 5.50, so you hadn't known where she was for at least five hours. Is that correct, Crane? Visibly growing in fluster, he releases his hands from her grasp and sits on them, palms up. His knuckles grind against the cold hard metal in a minor act of self-punishment for not being able to communicate what he wants to. Where do you go? She asks him in such a dead tone it almost sounds scientific in nature, like he's a subject for her to inquisitively study. I started looking for Mercy early this morning and no crane. Lachlan interjects as he walks by carrying books, pamphlets, awards, and acknowledgments from the science fair that Rowan had received. He continues, You started looking for her last night, around 8 o'clock. I know because I made myself a scotch and sat you down to talk. You looked consumed by something, and you said you couldn't find her. You were out the door after 8.08, my son, and where is she? Lachlan stiffens his spine, swiveling his neck side to side, left and right and left again, as if Mercy will come levitating in, sensing his intense desire for her. 
Crane knew that he cannot explain away nearly 15 hours from 8 p.m. to 11 this morning, but he can say he found her last night, sometime before they played hide-and-seek, and he lost her again. I did find her last night. He yelped unintentionally. Beads of sweat are forming on his forehead as he attempts to explain himself. I found her in the forest. She was digging for something and it was getting dark, so I wrapped my coat around her and brought her back in the house. He takes a breath and continues telling his fictitious story. She went missing again and, well, not missing again. I, I couldn't find her again this morning, but that's only because we were playing hide and seek and she's... She's really good at hiding. Yeah, with over five hours spent looking for her hiding place, I'd say that's pretty good, Lachlan, wouldn't you? Meredith says in such a pleasant manner, it tries to paint Mercy in a genuinely lovely light, as if hiding is a skill or a positive inherited trait, and not being able to find something when looking for it is a negative one. They may just be right about that, in fact. How will you be successful in life if you're wholly incapable of finding anything you set out to? Here's a hint. You won't. Crane scoffs inside of his mind and replies to Meredith's underlying blow to her son sitting next to her, saying, It was a good hiding place, Dad. In fact, it was none other than your study. He kinks his neck to look up at his mother, who has never been so stricken and continues his spiel while smoothly sliding his neck upwards to look at his standing father, who had just cleared his throat and crossed his arms. I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want Murr to get in trouble, but Mom actually found me in there after you got home. He really thought he had done something here. He thought he had done a figurative dance on his mother's desire to shame him in front of his father. Maybe he did this in hopes it would send Lachlan into such a fit of rage towards Meredith he would forget completely why he was questioning Crane in the first place. Or maybe it was because he was so sure that his mother would do her best to defend herself for not telling Lachlan this information immediately upon receiving it, she would oust herself willingly. Crane was selfishly and maniacally wishing for the latter. However, Lachlan then says something Crane would have never expected. Where is she now? Mercy? Crane asks stupidly. Yes, Crane, says Lachlan. You said that you found Mercy in the study, and then Meredith found you in the study. So where is Mercy now? This reaction towards Crane openly admitting to being in his father's study for the first time was unexpected to say the least, but also very enlightening. It proved to not only himself, but also his mother, that Mercy is the one thing on his mind. She is the one and only thing ever on his mind. Crane looks deep down between his knees and back up at his mother, who still sits next to him on the steps. They knew that Mercy was young, and most kids her age aren't safe to wander far on their own, but Mercy is different. She isn't afraid of much, but isn't ignorant either. She is smart, but not the kind of smart that kills curiosity. She is resourceful and knows these grounds better than most. She's probably safer than any one of the family members out there, and Lachlan logically should not be this aggressive about her being in the tree line. Seated below their mutual momentary oppressor, Meredith and Crane are both victims of Lachlan's. It was so clear in that moment, it was almost bonding as they look at one another and ignore his requests. 
In a matter of seconds, Lachlan Luker took his fingertips and grabbed the slack of fabric on the thighs of his pants. He then lifts up the pinched fabric to create leverage between his knees and hip creases. Lachlan bends down ever so slightly until his pants begin to tighten again around his knees. He then raises his hands and an arm's distance of Crane's ear, a thundering clap rings in Crane's psyche like a bell as his father's palms smack up against one another, wringing him out of whatever fixation he was in. Crane's body is immediately cold and stiff as he yells out loudly, She is in the tree line like always this time of night. Crane shudders like a scared but resentful animal, like something that's been beaten by the thing that's standing in front of it. Lachlan remains crouched, eye to eye with Crane. He smiles at him and Lachlan's smile grows warmer and egotistically thankful. It somehow feels colder and more synthetic because Crane knows that his father only ever had a smile whenever he got what he wanted. Lachlan reaches forward, pats his son on the face and gives his wife a kiss on the cheek before standing up and swiftly wiping his hips to blur the creases on his upper thighs. He sighs, looks at the two helpless slobs on the stairs, and turns to head towards the front door to find his prize hidden in the trees. Crane is visibly shaken up. His mouth went ajar once again and mentally flew anywhere that isn't here. Meredith then grabs onto the base of her son's round face, trying to manually push his lower jaw upwards and back into its comfortable resting place before Lachlan turns around and potentially sees. Crane's brain was, for all intents and purposes, focused on a very specific day in therapy. In Crane's mind, he is suddenly sitting in his therapist's office, whose name is Sudini, fidgeting with his thumbs and pretending not to pay attention as she drones on, talking about how it would be beneficial to him to care for things. She asks Crane, probingly, if there is anything in his home that he feels needs more love and care. He immediately thought of mercy, but no, he didn't say it. Although, ever since that day, Crane had been unofficially assigned to mercy by the family, and her to him. His therapist had also told Crane's parents that having a sole responsibility or specifically taking care of someone or something would be beneficial to him. Lachlan took this and ran with it. Knowing mercy is ever needing in care and Crane is far too meek to ruin her. Two incapables of change or defiance of one's nature, forever playing cat and mouse, forever distracted from anything outside of the duo themselves. A perfect pair for the lackluster parental figures that reign over this household. Crane was the cat that always catches the mouse but never sinks its claws in because it has itself been poked and prodded before and would quicker sink into a moratorium than be forced to hurt someone intentionally. Crane is the cat that catches and releases the mouse with love over and over again. The game that keeps Crane busy and keeps Mercy safe is perfect for a father who could ask for nothing more from his son. Crane is but a mere security blanket, and Mercy is the object he is meant to continuously cloak with his presence. Immediately following these increasingly constricting thoughts, Crane is zapped out of this moratorium as the front door flies open before his father could reach it to leave. Mercy comes rolling in after, nearly falling over Lachlan's feet. She cries up to him, 
grabbing the same creases on his slacks that he made earlier, near his front pockets. Someone hurt the forest and now it's bleeding, she whimpered with a wobbly lip as she lets her head fall to his legs. Lachlan places a hand on her blonde head and she looks up at him. What are you saying, my girl? Lachlan asks. Let me show you, she begs him, still hanging on to his legs. Lachlan looks back and nods sideways to Crane and Meredith, quietly demanding they join in his adventure to watch the earth bleed. Crane looks at Meredith and Meredith at Lachlan, as they both stand and soon float unprotestingly to the large doorway where Lachlan and Mercy currently stand. When leaving the brightness of the inside of the mansion, it becomes clear how dark it had gotten to be outside in only the past hour, and it has started to rain. The sun is still shining, though, just a sliver over the peak of the mountaintop towards the backside of the house. It's more well-lit the deeper you go up the tree line at this time of night, the closer you get to seeing the sun float over to the other side. Mercy begins to explain over the tapping sounds of the rainfall how she found what she was leading them to. She says that she found footsteps leading out of the forest and she decided to follow them. However, with this new rainfall, the footsteps were harder to follow. After about five or so minutes of guessing the trajectory of the footsteps, she would stumble upon something odd. The four of the five family members are led by their youngest to a gaping deep hole in the ground. There is a large pool of thick red liquid in the center, rimmed by spring-colored leaves and dirt. What is this? Crane asks with an underlying tone of grotesqueness. It was dug by a human, Meredith says without looking at anyone. She had focused her eyes on the dirt below them, studying the four finger lines carved in the dark soil. Lachlan does the same thing he did with his slacks previously. He pinches the extra fabric on his thighs and crouches down closer to the forest floor. Hmm, this is, uh, this is definitely something, he says while rubbing his currently stubbly chin. He had chosen somewhat of a husky-looking mask for the event today. He may have wanted to appear impenetrable to the public, possibly. Crane suddenly wants to reach down and touch the opening. But as soon as he does so, his fingers outstretch to the ground and he very subtly notices a darkness underneath his fingernails that isn't normally there. He recoils a bit and stands up vertically. What did I do? He asks himself. Why would I do something like this? I wouldn't, would I? Trying to act normal, Crane puts his hands on his hips and plasters an expression of curiosity on his face. What on earth could this mean? Crane asks while attempting to hide the shakiness in his voice. He knew deep down he had just come upon something about himself that's led him to far more questions than answers. Stood there amongst his family and his pool of past secrets, his father Lachlan cracks the stale air in half by saying, All right, you all, let's head inside. The sun is going down now, and who knows? Maybe this human beast is out here with us right now. Lachlan laughs, deviously, 
as the four begin to make their way towards the outer edge of the forest line once again, but before they could turn and walk north in the direction of the house, something colored gray catches their eyes. It's Crane's coat. It's hanging on the branch of a tree to the left of this mysterious, worldly wound. Before anyone could notice what was out of place here, Crane snatches the jacket off the otherwise bare branch and makes no scene of it. He follows a few feet behind Meredith, Mercy, and Lachlan, and all he could do was stare at his fingernails in the light of the somewhat pink moon. Using the stem of a leaf, he tries to scrape the gunk from the underside of his nails, but it doesn't work, so he drops the leaf, and his hands fall to his side and slide into his pajama pant pockets. He will have to wait until he gets home to clean up and figure out what to do. He knows he needs to make a plan, and he knows he needs to get a hold of that key in the study. I want to thank you all so much for joining me once again for Chapter 4. Next week is obviously Chapter 5, and moving forward, I'm upping the ante a bit, and I'm going to make these episodes a little bit meatier for you. So the first three episodes were about 15 minutes on average, and this one is about 20 minutes, I believe, after editing. So from here on out, I promise to provide a little extra. I know myself, when I listen to a podcast, I really love a long podcast. So if you know me and you know me on social media or if you have my contact information, please do reach out and let me know if you did like a little bit of a longer episode this week. And if you did, I will continue to do so. But until then, stay solid. See ya!